Hi guys, just before we start this episode, I just wanted to put a trigger warning um, at the beginning. This episode we do talk about postpartum depression, um, normal depression, postpartum anxiety, and we also talk about suicide ideation as well as a suicide attempt. So if any of these things are triggering to you, maybe skip this episode. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Cat Mom Podcast, the podcast where moms support other moms like drunk girls in a bar bathroom. I'm your host, Maggie Samick LaHaye, and no, I'm not a professional. I'm just a mom trying to do her best. Hello and welcome to part two of talking about postpartum depression. I have my lovely girl Steph back on the pod. Hey Steph. Hello it's been it feels like months years decades (laughs) since I've been here. I'm so sorry about that. Listen we both have been through it all in the past. I don't even know the last time that we we tried to record but from what we could remember before we started recording, these were the things that happened to us. So <laughs> you got bronchitis. Then I broke my butt by <laughs> literally bending over to pick up a cracker from the floor and like pulled my sciatica and was in so much pain. See, this um, just means you shouldn't do housework. You just shouldn't clean that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that was that was God just telling me, listen, Riley should be picking up her own damn crackers and you should not be doing it because you will break your butt. Um, then I got gastro. Jackson got gastro, which lasted about three days. Then my husband got gastro and got like 10 times worse than the both of us. And oh was gosh, literally... I just keep messaging Maggie and being like, how is his butt? <laughs> uh, poor, my poor husband literally was bedridden for like a good 10 days um, before we took him to the hospital. And it just turned out to be like a really bad case of norovirus. And there was literally nothing we could do. It was terrible for him. It was terrible for me because I was just solo parenting. Overall, it was just a bad scene and my mental health took a big toll but my in-laws came down thank god for my in-laws they also took the kids for a little bit so I've been like chilling the past like four days and just like being alone in my house and like that is an amazing feeling I'm sorry that everybody had to get a stomach bug to do it but (laughs) that is an amazing feeling It is such an amazing feeling. I mean, it felt very strange the first day. The first day I was like so sad and which was kind of shocking to me because I was literally like, I can't wait to have time by myself. But literally my heart kind of hurt a lot the day that they left. And Mm. I was like, it's very strange being in my house by myself and just sort of being comfortable enough to be by myself. Like, I don't know really totally how to explain it. I don't do great by myself. I find that I 
tend to get kind of depressed. So I sort of looked at it as a chance to um, like reconnect with myself, really sort of lean into relaxing because I'm not good at that with my ADHD. Um, And just taking some like self-care time and not feeling stressed about it, which has been... That is wonderful. It's honestly been amazing for my mental health. Um, And then within that time, you also lost your voice. (laughs) Yes, I lost my voice. And then my kids also got um, the stomach bug that seems to be apparently sweeping the continent. Yeah. Um, based on, you know, the reports from all of our friends. So um, first my daughter got it and we thought my son escaped, but he uh, did not in very spectacular fashion. A couple of days later, he just kind of, you know, demonstrated very violently that he did not <laughs> escape, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, so that was fun. Um, and then after we thought we were finally in the clear, uh, my daughter got a case of strep that also caused a flare-up of impetigo, which I had, again, never heard of this before I had children. It's one of those, you know, things that every parent is like, oh yeah, that. Um, But it's like a staph infection, basically, that likes to pop back up anytime you get another um, bacterial illness. So really excited about that. She got it the first time like six months ago and the doctor warned us at the time, like, hey, this is going to flare up probably anytime she gets another bacterial infection. And I was like, great, because kids don't ever get those. Oh my God. Um, (laughs) So luckily, you know, we knew what it was. We need to be prepared, et cetera. But I really, you know, I brought her in because it's like a little rash on her face. Mm-hmm. And I brought her in just thinking, you know, she had just recently had a stomach bug, you know, maybe that's why she had it. And then the doctor was like, surprise, she also can't breathe because her tonsils are closing her throat because she got strep. So that was a good, uh, proud mom moment when I was like, oh, I'm just here for this rash. And he's like, what about these massive tonsils? What do, what do you think about those? <laughs> But I mean, in your defense, like your daughter can't be like, hey, my throat closing up. And (laughs) like, you're not a doctor. You're not looking in your kids' mouths every night. Like, don't beat yourself up about it. Because I know you were like, I should have known. And I'm like, girl, how could you have known? It's not like you're so often that way. You know, I show up at the doctor for a routine um, appointment with one of the kids and they're like, surprise, double ear infection. Yeah. What? (laughs) Where did that come from? Speaking of like weird um, diseases that you have like no idea about before you become a parent, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Oh my gosh, yes. I had no idea. No clue what it sounds like it should be for like cows or something, right? Like, right? (laughs) It doesn't sound like a disease for children. Yeah, Um, I thought that too. I was like, isn't that like. like a hoof like a hoof disease and they're like no it's very normal in children and it is effing disgusting let me tell you and apparently I was super lucky that that uh, my husband and I didn't get it um, when either of our kids had it but apparently if adults get it it's really bad Mm-hmm. Um, I had a coworker that had it and she got like the blisters on the bottom of her feet. Yes. Um, and she couldn't wear shoes, but yes. also this was pre COVID. So she had to go into work because you can't exactly say I can't go to work because I have massive 
blisters oozing all over my feet. I mean, I wish you could, that would be fantastic. Um, but so she was like coming into work in tennis shoes and HR was trying to get onto her for wearing tennis shoes. And she's like, guys, you are lucky. I'm even here. I'm like oozing blisters. Oh my God. Um, I am your yeah. coworker because that happened to me as well. Oh no. When, when I was working in retail, um, Riley got hand, foot and mouth and, I let my, like, you know, my boss know. And I'm like, hey, it's super contagious. Like, I don't know if I should be coming into work. I have these blisters on my feet. And she's like, I don't care. Like, you need to come into work. Oh, no. So, and I had to wear heels. So I'm, like, in heels Ooh. with these blisters on my feet. And I'm like, this is terrible. And I hate my job. <laughs> that Quit is very soon after that. And also, I can just imagine, you know, like thank goodness I guess it was only on your feet because can you imagine if it was on your hands and you were trying to like hand people here's here's our high-end luxury items for you to try (laughs) here's our beautiful (laughs) new Kate Spade bag here's my beautiful blisters on my hands (laughs) disgusting (laughs) so gross well okay so I don't know who picked up the cursed tiki on the beach I don't know who was the virgin that lit the black flame candle, (laughs) but I do know that we're feeling like this podcast was a little bit cursed. Um, I don't know. We might need an old priest and a young priest to come in. I might need to sage this room, Um, but we're here now. So I feel like maybe we've broken the curse of this Uh, podcast. fingers Fingers crossed. We'll be able to make it through. I feel good. I feel like we're going to be able to do it today. Hopefully. Hopefully there isn't like, <laughs> you know, an earthquake or something will happen and the world I know, will I really, apart. I'm looking around in this, I'm in a phone room. Um, <laughs> it's just completely bare. So there is no wood that I can knock on. Um, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm, I'm mentally knocking on wood and crossing fingers and toes and all the things. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we have cursed each other somehow. We shall overcome. I feel like we're going to be able to get through this episode um, together. Um, I also wanted to thank, I have, or I guess I should say we, the podcast now has three Patreons. Um, yeah, I ha- I sort of mentioned in the last episode that I have started a Patreon. If you do feel so inclined to help uh, the podcast in a monetary way, um, that would be fantastic. Um, so we have our very first Patreon was Alex with an I. We have Kat, who is our fellow cat mom. And we have Dana, who is the loveliest human. I've been chatting with her on um, on Instagram, and she is just the sweetest. She's a new mom. She's a friend of a friend of mine, and she is just absolutely lovely. So thank you, thank you, thank you to our three Patreons. It honestly means the world to me. Um, and so in honor of starting up with patreon i wanted to do something special for our first 15 patreons so i've had 15 limited edition cat mom keychains made they're on their way to me um i'm going to make sure obviously that they're great and awesome before sending them out but 
for our first 15 Patreons, I'm going to send you a keychain. Um, it will be a limited edition. So you will be, there'll be 15. Well, there'll be actually, there'll be 20 of these in, in the world. Um, because I want one too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, yeah, some of my, my uh, girlfriends are going to get some too, but there will be, it's a limited edition run. I wanted to do something special for the first 15 Patreons. So if you guys are interested in that, please go to patreon.com slash the cat mom podcast and sign up today. Um, you can do $5 a month, which is literally the price of a coffee. Um, and it goes all the way up to 15. So uh, whatever you feel like doing for the keychain giveaway, it's honestly anything. It's just my appreciation for um, people just signing up for Patreon because it just honestly means so much to me. So go to patreon.com slash the Catmum podcast and the first 15 people will be getting a limited edition Catmum keychain. I might be trying to steal one of those. Just a play. Yeah. <laughs> Sign up for Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so today we are going to talk about postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, um, and just sort of general mental health after giving birth because both of us went through the ringer post-birth yes. post mental health wise um I don't know if you want to start with your experience um yeah. with mental health and all that I stuff do. yeah so for anybody who listened to the last podcast episode we talked a little bit about how my pregnancy was fairly traumatic and it was a pregnancy after a loss um and so I was already you know, not super in a great frame of mind throughout my pregnancy. There was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop, waiting for the next thing to go wrong. Um, and, you know, I, I had a lot of preconceptions about what postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety might be. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in Houston. And so I don't know if you know the story of Andrea Yates, um, but yes. she was a Houston mom that um, killed her children in, in what is, I think now to be understood, a case of, um, oh gosh, and I forget the technical term, but it's like postpartum it's, psychosis. Yes, postpartum psychosis. And so that was, that was a story that I was very familiar with growing up because it happened, oh gosh, I can't even remember now, maybe the 90s, is that right? I think so, um, like late 90s, early 2000s. And like, I yes. remember that case too, because I was just like, how could a mom do this to her kids? Like, she is evil. Like, what yes. a terrible person. And then when you actually go into the story, it is her husband, who is the asshole, who forced her to keep having kids after her doctor was like, she is unwell. She keeps having postpartum psychosis and she needs to stop having kids and he kept getting her pregnant he moved her into a bus at one point with their like oh my gosh four children yeah I had no idea about this I was like that alone is an is enough right there like I could not yes. imagine having postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis and living on a bus with like three or four children like that poor oh woman I mean it was just it was a 
it was everything just was not in her favor at all no. the poor woman but yes. she was not getting the help that she very much needed or deserved but that was so that was the what i heard about when i heard about postpartum de depression people always sort of spoke of it as a um like you would have these homicidal urges or you would mm -hmm. have these suicidal urges etc but they never really talked about some of the other ways that it can show up mm -hmm. um and also there was a very big emphasis on the postpartum period um yes and it was never really talked about the fact that the hormone changes that are happening to your body postpartum are also happening while you're pregnant and so some of this can begin in pregnancy mm -hmm. um and so all of that kind of leading up to, you know, I had, I had this pretty traumatic pregnancy. I had a pretty traumatic birth itself. Um, I mean, obviously my baby, you know, survived and was ultimately able to thrive, but he was born, you know, three weeks early. He was only five pounds. Mm -hmm. um, he was in the NICU for a week. And I was, I was really struggling to keep it together in the hospital. I, re I distinctly remember one of the, the NICU pediatricians looking at me and saying, he's not in here because of anything you did. You know that, right? And I was like, yeah, I, I think so. And she was like, okay, because you're very teary and I'm a little concerned that you're a little, you know, more emotional about this than you should be. And like, this was a pediatrician that I'd never met before in my life, right? It was just, mm -hmm. you know, she was the random on-call pediatrician. And I kind of looked at her and I was like, more emotional than I should be with my son in the NICU. And she's like, that's not what I meant. And she just kind of dropped it. And that was kind of the first indication that anybody outside of me had, um, that there was maybe something not quite right with my mental state. But, you know, I, I felt like it was all pretty normal, right? Like my kids in the NICU, of course I'm emotional. Yeah, of course um, you would be emotional. And yeah, that kind of rubs me the wrong way because... I think our society, and I mean, I've been in therapy for, for a very long time, but in the past year, I've sort of made this realization that my whole life, I've kind of, anytime something happens or something traumatic happens in my life or something bad happens in my life, I'm kind of like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I push it to the side. I push it to the side. I push it to the side. And then all of a sudden I kind of explained it to my therapist that it's like Monica's like dirty closet and friends like yes. that one closet and then they like open it and just like everything falls out it's it like, all comes out yes it all comes out and it's like if you don't deal with your emotions in that moment it's gonna come out at some point so it kind yes. of makes me mad that that doctor wasn't like girl your kid is in the NICU you have every right to be crying right now that's scary that's a yes, scary I, place. Like looking course, back at it, I really think that I wish she had said something more or maybe pointed me to some resources. Mm -hmm. Because it was like she broke the conversation, but then sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say she should have just given you a freaking hug. Like, I mean yes. you know, like yeah, like resources or just being like you know this is totally normal that you're crying this is but if you feel like it's super overwhelming or whatever then maybe talk to your doctor about it or whatever you know like just I think in general I think crying and I think showing emotion sort of our generation has grown up sort of being like okay we don't cry we don't sort of show this yes. we um we keep it to ourselves um 
you know, if you're struggling, like don't talk to other people about it. Um, and I think that's so damaging. Um, especially like for men as well, like women, we get it a lot, but I think men get it even more that it's like, you're a man, don't cry. And it's like, oh, absolutely. it's like, we need as a society to allow having emotions and, you know, getting those emotions out should be less stigmatized. Absolutely. You know, like I've always been told like, you're too emotional. You cry about everything. And I told that to my psychiatrist and she was like, that's a good thing. <laughs> it's actually a healthy thing. <laughs> it's a healthy thing. So I think just changing our perspective on those types of things is important because it's like, it you know, it, yeah, it needs to, it, there needs to be less stigma. There needs to be sort of like a, like a frame of mind switch that like crying is a bad thing it's not necessarily a bad thing it's you getting your emotions out and it's actually like it can be a good thing now if you're crying all the time then we're talking about depression or anxiety and we'll get into that but sorry I went on a tangent (laughs) no you're fine I was gonna say too though that this ties into one of our conversations that we had a lot on on the cat moms in the early days is that you know during your pregnancy there's a big focus on you as the pregnant mom Mm-hmm. But once you have the baby, it's all about the baby. Yes. Um, and that was one of the things that I acutely felt in the hospital. And I understand, you know, my son was in the NICU. I absolutely wanted all the attention on him. Mm-hmm. But I had just had major surgery. Yeah. And I was, you know, trying to go back and forth between my own hospital bed and the NICU uh, for the first I actually, I don't respond well to epidurals apparently. So my legs were paralyzed for 48 hours after I was, after uh, my son was born. Oh God. And yeah, so I had to be wheeled back and forth between the NICU for the first two days, which was, I, I was like, I am going to walk again, right? And they were like, yes, this happens to some people. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, so uh, another thing I'd never heard about before <laughs> giving birth, but apparently it happens. Um, and so you know, after I got my mobility back, it felt a little bit like I was just kind of being ignored. Mm -hmm. Um, And all the focus was on the baby and what he needed. And there was no focus anymore on the fact that I was still, I was recovering from surgery and healing and needed assistance. And so I think, you know, the interaction with that doctor, I, I look back on that and I'm like, there are a bunch of different ways that that could have gone so much better. Mm-hmm. And I, I know her focus was supposed to be the baby, but, mm-hmm. but I really feel like that would have been a great moment for her to maybe reach out to the nurses that were supposed to be, you know, covering my room and saying, Hey, maybe could you check on her or, yeah. or something like that. And so mm-hmm. that's something that we talked about a lot in the mom's group is that, you know, once the baby is born, it's like, Oh, how's baby doing? How's baby sleeping? How's this? How's that? And it's never, how is the mom sleeping? How are you doing? How is, you know, like, how are you feeling about all this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, I, I went from being a person that had a very defined sense of purpose and a d- very defined routine and, you know, all these things that were going on in my life. I, you know, was a work, I, I worked, um, up until the day my baby was born. Uh, we talked about in the last episode, I <laughs> yeah. had like, I had meetings uh, after I was told that I needed to have a baby right away because I was like, oh, I got to close off some of this work stuff. So 
you know, I went from a person that had like a very defined sense of purpose and a very routine schedule and all that to being kind of thrust into this world as a new parent where nobody was focused on me at all. It was all about the baby. And um, I was trying to pump and very unsuccessfully, I wasn't getting any sleep. Um, I just was, you know, we, one of the other moms talks about how her babies in this time period were uh, smiley potatoes. Mine was not a smiley potato. He was, he was cranky and um, he had a little bit of colic, we think. And, um, you know, I was, I was just super struggling. And I was talking to my husband about it a little bit because I mean, I would just sit there and just, I would try to eat dinner and I would just sob through dinner. I wouldn't be able to eat anything because I was just crying so hard. And he was like, this is not, this is not normal. This is not okay. And I was like, but you know, I I was trying to power through it because nobody else that I really knew had had these experiences. Nobody else felt this way that I knew of. And so I was like, I'm a horrible mother, right? Because I have this baby that I very much wanted and I can't stop crying. Um, I, I have this life that I've been wanting for the longest time and he's here and he's healthy and he's fine. And yet I'm unhappy. Mm-hmm. And so that led me to a pretty dark place of being like, I'm not a good enough mom. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the consistent thoughts that I had was like, he would be better off without me as a mom. Mm-hmm. And, not, I never had a, I never had a plan. I never had a active desire to hurt myself or kill myself or anything like that. But I just had this very distinct feeling of if I was just gone, he would be better off. And so at one point I said that to my husband and he was like, okay, that is, (laughs) we have got to make and so mm-hmm. he suggested that I call my OB and see um, see what recommendations she had. And she had a couple of recommendations of um, psychiatrists that I should should talk to. And so I got in to, to see one. And I didn't really want to go see him because I had what I thought of as this, like, dirty, dark little secret that these feelings weren't new. Um, they started really around the time that I was going into the um, going into the doctor for my last appointment when I had mm-hmm. that last sonogram and they told me that I was going to have a baby the next day. Um, mm-hmm. That is when this like all of a sudden moment of abject panic started while I was still pregnant. And I had this feeling right then um, that I was going to go in for a C-section and if I died on the table, like, well, maybe that would be okay. And so that felt like this, like, you know, dirty little secret to me because it couldn't be postpartum depression if it happened before the baby was born. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like, well, that can't be what this is because, you know, maybe I'm just a bad person. Maybe I'm just a bad mom. And so we went into the psychiatrist and my husband went with me for the first appointment because of what my life was like and what my attitude was like. And the, I remember the, (laughs) <laughs> the doctor looked at me and goes, that's not when it started. And because I guess I had a very visible reaction. I don't have a very good. Yeah, um, either do I. I said, <laughs> I said, no, that's not when it started. And I explained the story about just being in the, in the operating room and thinking like it would be okay if, if I was gone. Um, 
and I was like, this is why, see, it's not postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. This is something else because it happened before the baby was born. And that was when he unleashed the completely new to me knowledge that postpartum depression absolutely can begin before the baby is born. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously called something different in that phase because you're still pregnant, but he's like, these hormonal shifts that are happening are happening throughout your pregnancy and throughout your postpartum period. And so it is very natural for something like this to happen um, even before the baby is born. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wait, so this doesn't mean that I'm an awful mom? And he's like, not at all. This is incredibly common, especially in people who have baseline anxiety. So, you know, one of the things that he talked about is that he, you know, he asked me about my history with mental health, et cetera. And I'd never really been um, professionally diagnosed, but I always knew that I was a person that had a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, we talked about that a little bit and he said, you know, one of the things that's really key is that if you're a person with kind of a baseline level of anxiety, having these hormonal shifts can really just, I mean, they can just really rock your world and make it so much more acute. Um, and so he's like the hormonal shifts that happen when you're pregnant are equivalent in many ways to the ones that you're having when you're postpartum. And so he was like, you know, he talked about it really kind of being a spectrum of time and um, that, you know, labeling it only postpartum anxiety is maybe not the most accurate. He was, he was like, we really need to revisit the guidebook on this. I'm like, okay, let's do that sometime. <laughs> um, but basically, you know, all these fears that I had about the fact that I was experiencing these feelings before um, were just totally unfounded. And so we, we got... Um, uh, I got prescribed a medication, um, for anxiety and depression. And the, the, the thing that's really unhelpful, <laughs> and I like pharmacists and, you know, scientists, you need to get on this. All of these things take time to work, right? It's yeah. not a, you get on this pill and it's instantly better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was at this appointment, you know, I was probably six or eight weeks postpartum and they take another like several weeks to work. And so I was like, what am I supposed to do in the meantime? Like I'm having all these, I'm having all these feelings and um, all this stuff is happening. And, and one of the things that I kept experiencing was these crazy, um, what he called them are intrusive thoughts. And so <laughs> what I had always thought of as intrusive thoughts were that kind of, again, back to the Andrea Yates conversation where she had those intrusive thoughts that were apparently telling her to hurt her children. Mm-hmm. Um that's not what I was experiencing. What I was experiencing was all these panic anxiety moments of something happening that I couldn't <laughs> stop. So for example, like I would be sitting in the recliner thinking I need to put my son in his crib. And then all of a sudden I would have this, oh my gosh, what if I don't lift him high enough up above the crib and I hit his head on the crib bars? Oh my gosh, what if, what if that happens? What if I would hit his head and he gets hurt? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it wasn't a, I want this thing to happen. It was, oh my gosh, this could happen. And because I'm so afraid of it happening, I can't do anything. Um, so I would just literally sit there in a recliner holding him afraid to put him in his crib because I was like, what, it, like I had a, I had this very clear visual of it happening. I was like, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly what it's going to look and sound like. Um, 
And so I was talking to the doctor about that and he was like, yes, that is very traditional postpartum anxiety. Like, mm-hmm. This is a, this is a very n- normal is not really the right word, but you know, like for textbook. People who have, yes, exactly. Textbook. Yeah. And so, um, so one of the things that he was saying is, you know, while we're waiting for the medicine to kick in on that, you have to be able to do something to get yourself out of this spiral of thought. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, get out and go for a walk, listen to a podcast that you have to focus a little bit on. Like don't just listen to music where your mind can wander, et cetera. Stopping the anxiety spiral. Um, Mm -hmm. while I was trying to, while I was trying to get this, (laughs) this medicine to work, and, you know, it really, I really hate it every time a doctor tells me that I just need to go out and exercise and I'll feel better, but it turns out that you do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so that was like, I had to go at a very strict regimen of like, anytime, anytime I had an anxious thought, um, I would like plop the kid in a stroller and go for a walk around our, our neighborhood was like three streets connected. So it was like a very quick little 15 minute loop. Um, and so I'm, I am ashamed. I will not tell you how many quick 15 minute loops I did in those first few weeks after <laughs> that doctor's appointment, because I was like, I've got to get, a, get myself out of the spiral. I got to go do this. Um, but it really, oh my goodness, it, it made such a night and day difference. And, um, ultimately I was on the medication for about, um, a year and a half after my son was born. Um, because, you know, so one of the things once you get on the medication that you have to taper down appropriately once you're Mm -hmm. kind of stabilized. And, um, for me, seasonal effectiveness disorder is a big thing. Um, for me, work stress was a big thing. And so it was like really planning the appropriate time to come back down off of that medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when I had my daughter, um, I had a very different experience because I already knew kind of what symptoms to expect. I already knew what I was looking for. And so, you know, my daughter's pregnancy was very uneventful and uh, she was still very closely monitored because of everything that went wrong with my son. So I still had ultrasounds every two weeks, <laughs> um, which was, you know, not great for the anxiety, but at least, you know, at least at these appointments, they were like, nope, everything's perfect. Everything's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, unlike with my son where they were like, there's something wrong, but you probably shouldn't worry about it yet. <laughs> You're like, I am um, worrying. <laughs> yes. They're like telling somebody not to worry is just, sorry, it shouldn't be done. No. Um, but they, so I, my daughter was very closely monitored, but everything was going well. Her pregnancy, I had a scheduled C-section at a, uh, at a very normal time. Um, I had a very untraumatic birth. She never went to the NICU. Everything, you know, everything that went wrong with my son's birth did not go wrong with hers. And so, um, so I was really actually, you know, we left the hospital. I was smiling. I was happy. I was feeling great. And then about three or four days later, I was just sobbing nonstop at the dinner table again. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I was like, I had convinced myself kind of that the reason that I was triggered before with, um, with my son was not because of the postpartum hormone crash, but was because of his like traumatic birth, et cetera. And so I was like, if I can prevent the traumatic birth from happening, maybe I can prevent the postpartum depression from happening, <laughs> you know, as though I'm like super in control of that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I have to laugh actually talking about being in control of that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that I talked about with my uh, psychiatrist was um, 
one of the things that I've always kind of thought is if I worry about something, it's not going to happen because I thought about it, right? Yes. Um, and you figured out yes. every single outcome that could possibly happen. So you're like, exactly. I'm prepared. Yeah. Exactly. And so one of the things that really set me off when my son was born was because, you know, he had all these, there were all these complications in his pregnancy and, and all these things. And, but one of the things that I had never considered what they rolled into his room to do the, um, the, the neonatal hearing test. And I was like, you have to test his hearing. And they were like, yeah, it's a routine screening uh, to make sure he's not deaf. And I was like, oh my God, he's going to be deaf because I never considered it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was explaining this to my doctor and he was like, you have given yourself magic powers. And I was like, yes, I have. But that's, that has been my, you know, lifelong anxiety coping strategy, right? Yeah. Is if I consider it, then it's not going to happen. Or if it does, I'm prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so funny because, okay, so when Riley was born, so I'm, I had like significant hearing loss in one year. Um, and I've had it since I was a child, just from chronic like ear infections. And when Briley was born, like everything went well. I'm like, she's perfect. She's beautiful. Like so happy in such a good place. They came in to do the, the ear testing and she failed. Oh no. And I, I remember just like my mom was in the room and I remember her looking at me and just being like, oh no. And I just like lost it I was just like this was not something that I knew about same as you like couldn't have been anxious about it and like I was just like oh my god like my baby is is deaf and luckily like she she wasn't and we had to do like an ear like a hearing test later on um and the person who like did the hearing test was apparently new and they like gave me this pamphlet and I was just sort of like, is my baby deaf? Like what's going on? And they were just sort of like, Oh, we don't know, but you have to do like further testing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I told the person who did the second hearing test that, and they were just like, Oh my God. Like I am so sorry that this happened to you because like, this is not what they're supposed to do at all. And, oh, my God. Yeah, that was, like, the first thing for me that I was just, like, oh, my, oh, my God, like, something's wrong with my baby. And it's one of those things where, like, apparently, and I learned this later with Juliet because she failed the, um, she failed the screening, which, Mm -hmm. thank goodness, it didn't happen to my son. So, (laughs) he, you know, had all these other problems. And he, he passed the test just fine. And so I was like, okay. Thank goodness, because I could not have handled one more thing going wrong at that point. Um, But, you know, when my daughter was born, um, you know, everything was kind of picture perfect. And then they were like, oh, she failed the the test. And like, uh, I was in a much better frame of mind at that point and everything had gone pretty well. And so I was like, okay, what does that mean? Just kind of, you know, what does it mean that she failed it? And they were like, oh, it actually happens quite a lot because they have to be in the exact right sleepy position. And they have to, you know, the, the headphones have to fit just right and all this stuff. And so they're like, it's super common. We'll try again. I'm like, okay, that would have been great to know. <laughs> I would have liked that technician to do have done it on yeah. my daughter. <laughs> well, that would have been great to know before they started to the test. Right? Exactly. Like, this is information you need to know before you get a, hey, they, the test failed. Yeah. Um, 
But see, yeah, my, um, you know, all my, all my planning worked out perfectly with my daughter. And so she had a, she had a textbook birth, everything was fine. We went home and a couple of days later, there I was again, crying at the kitchen table. Um, Mm -hmm. And so at that point I at least knew, okay, this is the postpartum hormone crash. I already have a doctor that I can call. So I called him right away. Um, he, because he'd already seen me and knew me well, he was willing to go ahead and call in the prescription while we waited for me to be able to get an appointment. Mm-hmm. So I could go ahead and at least get started on the medication. That's awesome. Um, and so, yes, it was, I mean, just night and day different from the first time where I was like, I don't even know who to talk to. Um, I don't even know where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, um, it was a, it was so much a better experience because I had, you know, that, that couple of weeks while I was waiting for the medication to kick in, but I'd already had, you know, the, that baseline of understanding from my first time around where I knew these are the things I need to do to kick the habit. Um, and so this is when I started my mall walking. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> all right, gotta go, gotta go do my mall walking, you know, with my son, you know, he was a summer baby. And so that was, you know, walking around the neighborhood was super easy, but with my daughter being a January girl, it was a lot harder. And so, um, but I had, I had a friend who gave birth around the same time as I did. And she was also experiencing a lot of the, like, um, we're stuck in the house, you know, kind of slowly mm-hmm. going insane with the new baby routine. And so she and I met every day at the mall oh, um, I love at the that. same time. And yeah, and our, our babies are still little friends now. It's really cute. Oh, I love that so much. But it, it was really, it was really interesting to me to have that same anxiety experience with like the perfect pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I had blamed so much of what my mental health state was on the fact that that pregnancy went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though my doctor kind of talked to me about like baseline anxiety and hormone crashes and stuff like that in my head, I was still kind of like, yeah, but it's because of all the things that had gone wrong before. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually really helpful for me personally to understand that everything can go right and you can still feel that way. A hundred percent. Because I just kind of, you know, mental health, there's so much of a stigma of, mm-hmm of all of these issues, like you must be doing X wrong. If only you would exercise more, if only you would eat right, if Mm -hmm. only you would focus on the positive, like there's, there's all these kind of different well-meaning things that like, yes, all of that stuff is super helpful, but you could be doing everything right. And you could still have mental health issues. Absolutely. That is one of the things. It does not discriminate. (laughs) It does not discriminate. It will hit everybody. Absolutely. And so that was really helpful for me with like having conversations with other moms, because I think, you know, after, after I had my experience with my son, I became very outspoken about postpartum depression and anxiety and basically being like a, if you need help, call me kind of person. Mm -hmm. Um, But because at that point, so much of it, my experience was based on you know, if I explain my story to people, I usually started out with like, here's all my horrible trauma. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why it was so bad. And they're like, oh gosh, well, no wonder you were so anxious. Um, But so if they didn't have that same experience, right, then it wasn't necessarily helpful to them. Um, And so now that I have this other experience with my daughter, where like, yeah, I mean, I had no trauma I had no I had nothing went wrong other than her other than her hearing test but she did ultimately pass um but 
you know, still having that same experience was really helpful to me and has been helpful to a lot of the women that I've talked to because it really is, you could be doing everything quote unquote, right. Yeah. Um, you could be doing everything that you're supposed to do and still have these feelings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that was really interesting now that I have the kind of historical perspective to look back on it is how differently postpartum depression and anxiety manifested the second time around Mm -hmm. um, and how it has manifested differently across different moms that I've, I've spoken to and how it was ultimately different than, you know, kind of all the preconceived expectations that I had. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how with my son, I had this crazy traumatic birth. Um, he was in the NICU. He had a bit of a, of a sob story kind of going into, um, into the first several weeks postpartum. And so that naturally made sense to a lot of people around me that I had postpartum depression and anxiety. Um, it made sense that I needed some help sorting out those feelings and those hormones and things like that. Um, with my daughter, you know, everything went great. And I did have that, you know, I did have that anxiety all throughout the pregnancy that was, you know, when is this pregnancy going to turn out badly? <laughs> um, but I don't think that was, I don't necessarily think that was hormone induced or anything like that. I think it was just, you know, number one, being a person with anxiety, mm -hmm. um, but number two, being a person who previously had a really bad experience, right? So mm -hmm. um, you're just kind of waiting for that experience to repeat itself. And I was very lucky it didn't. Um, and so I, you know, got, I got through the hospital period with my daughter. I got home, I was feeling great. And then a couple of days later, I was like, oops, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but the feeling, it was really interesting. You know, I had these kind of, um, you know, we were talking about earlier, the intrusive thoughts, they were very different than they were with my son, um, where the intrusive thoughts with my son were mostly about how I was, I was just bad, um, <laughs> and a bad mom and how I wasn't right for him and that how he'd be better off without me. With my daughter, it was this, you know, incessant fear of everything that was going to go wrong. Um, we had stairs in our house. I was terrified of accidentally tripping on the stairs and falling down with her. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, I literally, like, I would hand the baby to my husband and be like, could you, could you do this? Because I was just so terrified. I couldn't even move. Um, and, you know, so talking about that with my doctor, he's, he was explaining that, you know, what kind of happens there is, and what I love about my doctor is that he, he explains everything so logically. And he's like, of course, here's the logic behind it. Here's the science mm -hmm. behind it. Um, and so that helps quite a bit because it helps me realize, you know, there actually is, you know, this is, it's not just something crazy made up in my head. This is um, a real hormonal shift, a real way that your body is designed to work. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just in overdrive for people with um, these conditions. And so he was saying, you know, your, your body is wired to look for these situations that are dangerous mm -hmm. and prepare you to avoid them. Where it goes wrong in a person with postpartum anxiety is that once you have addressed the situation, the, the wire doesn't trip, right? So you don't say, oh, okay, there are stairs nearby. I'm going to be extra careful on the stairs and then go. Mm -hmm. um you say oh my gosh 
I could fall down the stairs with my baby. This is what could happen. And what happens if I fall on top of the baby? And then you know, it goes into this whole spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that was really key there was managing how to like um, get myself out of that spiral. Um, and he taught me a lot of different tips and tricks um, that were really helpful while I waited for the medication to kick in. Because as we talked before, um, it takes a long time for for these uh, different types of medications to work and they don't always work. You know, what worked on you last time may not work on you this time. Mm-hmm. Um, what worked for one of your friends may not work for you. And so it's this really, you know, it can be a lengthy trial and error process. And so it's really important to get that help from somebody who knows how to address some of the symptoms in the meantime, how to help you manage them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was so interesting. Again, now, now in hindsight, I'm like, Oh, interesting. Um, that there's all <laughs> these different ways that it can manifest in you. You know, like I think we talked about before what, what we'd heard about stereotypically was the, you know, the postpartum psychosis where it's a, um, like a, a desire to harm. Um, and so I was like, well, I don't have that, but I do have this crazy anxiety that's paralyzing me and I can't do anything, which that could end up harming, right? Like if I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm stuck in the room and I can't leave, <laughs> and <then> I yeah. <laughs> can't, <laughs> you know, that can, that can also lead to harm or, you know, in my, in my first case with my son, it wasn't at all that I wanted to harm him or myself, but it was just that I didn't feel like I was the right mom or a good mom. I thought he was better without me. Um, I remember I just have this vivid memory of sitting in the kitchen table at the house that we lived in then saying, I just don't want to be here. Um, yeah. And my husband going, oh boy, okay. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the sign that we've got to really address this. And so it it just manifested so differently. And, you know, talking to my doctor about it, it was, it was really validating, I think, to hear that he has seen all of these experiences across all of his patients across all time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the fact that it shows up one way in me and, you know, one way in me in one pregnancy or one postpartum situation and shows up differently later, that doesn't say anything about me. That says anything about, you know, what the crazy stuff our hormones do mm-hmm. <laughs> and what, um, what the range of possibilities is with that change in hormones and with that um, change in brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, that was a lot of me talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love Please also that. <laughs> I love also that your doctor really explained it to you in that way because I feel like I like I've seen a lot of um, psychiatrists and. I, I absolutely love my psychiatrist right now. And she's also very good at that, at explaining like the reasons behind stuff and um, like explaining like maybe why I feel a certain way. Um, so I think any good, like, I think your doctor sounds amazing. And especially with like, you know, understanding that it's going to take a while for that medication to kick in and to have those um like tips and tricks to sort of get you out of that anxiety spiral like you had talked before about like going for walks is there anything else that you remember that your doctor suggested for you to do in order to sort of stop that anxiety spiral yeah so it was kind of interesting one of them that he gave me is kind of a double-edged sword um and I'll well so one of the things that he said is to try to find a task 
that is engaging for your mind, um, but not important. Mm. Um, meaning something that you can focus your attention on, but that if you, if you get distracted while doing it because the anxiety is too much, it's not, you know, dangerous. (laughs) And so a couple of examples that he gave for that is something like laundry, where you Mm -hmm. have to be focused on like, here, this goes here, this folds here, et cetera. And while you're doing laundry, listening to a podcast with an engaging story. So your hands are occupied, your mind is occupied, but it's not thing, you know, it's not something key or important that if Mm -hmm. you mess it up, you know, life will still go on if the laundry is folded a little funny, or if you don't remember what happened in the podcast exactly. Um, Versus like trying to cook a, like trying to bake a cake or something. He was like, I wouldn't recommend that because if you get, (laughs) you know, caught in the anxiety spiral and then the oven catches on fire, like that's really, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so for me, um, that combination of exercise and podcasting, um, it's really funny at the podcast on point uh, with Magna Chakrabarty is my Mm -hmm. favorite because she always has really interesting interviews um, and really interesting topics, but they're also not things that are, it's not always current events related. And so I don't feel bad if I haven't caught the entire story, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's what, it's a daily podcast. And so I would get out every day when it was released and go out for a walk and listen to it. And so that way I had something physical I was doing and my mind was also engaged with something. Um, Love that. The one that's the kind of devil-edged sword is he mentioned like finding an engaging um, game to play, like a phone game. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I have unfortunately become a massive addict to the like gardenscapes and homescapes and merge mansion type of games. (laughs) Um, Because it is so easy. It's really quick to get into them, but you do have to focus a little bit on strategy Um, and the games, the levels change and like, there's a little bit of change in it that kind of keeps you engaged. And so he's like, yeah, something like that, where it keeps your brain moderately engaged. It keeps your hands engaged. Like that all kind of gets together to get you out of that thinking spiral. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, it was great. It really helped. I unfortunately have now developed a phone addiction um, (laughs) as a result of it. So my husband is like, maybe don't encourage other people with that tip. Um, but you know, it really, it really does help. (laughs) It does help. And you know what? I am thoroughly addicted to the game Best Fiends. Oh my gosh. Um, That one's so good. It's so good. Also, Best Fiends, hit me up. I would love for you to, um, be a sponsor for the podcast because I'm literally on, like level 6,000. I've been playing this game for years and I can honestly, like, I can speak from the heart and I know that you do um, sponsorships. So hit me up because I love you anyways. And I literally play it every single night. Like it just, it helps my brain just like de like disconnect and like de-stress me. Yes. And I'm, I'm probably not going to let my husband listen to this episode of the podcast because I'm about to say I actually do spend money on the Best Fiends one. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> like this is, I, I feel kind of embarrassed, but kind of not about it. But, um, you know, I used to be one of those people that I like, who spends money on these free games? Me. It's me. It's me. Um, it's me. Yeah. Especially <laughs> when it's like, you know, extra gold the new points. Season. Like I want, yeah. I want the gold blocks. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Those gold blocks, I, I, I would like, you know, if we get best fiends on here, I would like to have a word with them about how their gold blocks should be a little less expensive. But <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> the other thing, uh, before I forget that uh, the doctor mentioned as trying to like, so if you're in a real big spiral, um, like, so some of my spirals are just kind of, you know, my brain jumps from thought to thought. And then over time, because it's getting real worked up, I get to a point where I am kind of frozen in paralysis and can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, what he said is to like blast a fun song and dance to it. And he's mm-hmm. like, you're not, he's like, you're not going to want to do it. Um, but just get up and make yourself do it. And I was very skeptical of this move. Um, but I have been pleasantly surprised. Um, I was kind of inspired by, um, the Grey's Anatomy, Christina and Meredith dancings. <laughs> um, and so the first time I was like, okay, I'll do the shake it off or whatever. And, um, and it actually, I was like, I was shocked by the end of it. I was like, wait, my mood is totally different. Um, and so it really is something, something that changes, you know, what you're like, that interrupts what you're thinking in your head and something that physically interrupts what you're doing both of the I think the combination of the two is just so important um so luckily I don't have to do I don't have to do like dance mode very often um (laughs) but that one is really good for if you're just I mean if you were just spiraling and you can't get yourself out of it um just say dance mode and go for it yeah I've definitely done so I went to music theater years and years and years and years ago what seems like 400 lives ago (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I used to do, um, like Broadway song and dance (laughs) in my kitchen, my poor neighbors, if they saw the moves, the, the attempted Fosse moves to the Chicago soundtrack, I, I might die, but it (laughs) honestly, it got me, it would, it got me out of so many funks. And like singing is a good one too. Like I've done a lot of, um, I wouldn't say research, but I mean, like I've watched a lot of TikToks um, on vagus nerve stimulation. Um, Oh, yes. And it's really helped me a lot with my anxiety, especially sort of like icing my chest. So anytime that I feel super um, uh, anxious, I'll just like lie down with an ice pack on my chest and that'll stimulate the vagus nerve. Um, I haven't tried that. Yes, it's great. Riley does it too when she feels like stressed out because she's seen me do it. Um, Cold showers, also great. Um, I like to do just like a cold little zap at the end of a shower just to sort of, you know, hit the nerve. Um, And also singing as well also stimulates the vagus nerve. Um, And the nice thing about the vagus nerve that I didn't realize um, is that it's like a muscle. So every time that you stimulate it, it like grows. So it's, it's not like you will lose any of that. It just gets stronger and stronger, if that makes any sense. That's nice. Yeah. Which is nice. Um, So yeah, vagus nerve stimulation has been massive for me with my anxiety for sure. Yeah, the ice is interesting. I will say hot baths are normally my like relaxation go to and I mm-hmm. cannot do a hot bath in an anxiety spiral. I found this out the wrong way because yeah. it raises your pulse. It raises your blood pressure usually too. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that combined together just makes me even more, you know, 
fight or flight mode. Um, yeah. And so um, I, but then I, I never thought about doing the opposite, like getting, getting some ice. That's a good call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even just like, I mean, even at the end of the sh- of your shower, just like doing like a quick, like one or two minutes of just like cold, it also wakes you up too. Like, I just feel like it just gives me that extra energy boost for the day and then just calms down my anxiety. It's quite a, it's very interesting. I mean, like before I was like, ugh, these people who do like cold water dips, like I have a girl, <laughs> I have a girlfriend who's like a trauma therapist and she's like, oh, I do like cold water dips every day. And I'm like, you are insane. And then I like read up on it and I'm like, she's actually not insane. This is like probably one of the better things that you could be doing for your body and yeah. your mental health. It's like all the time people say that they feel better after exercise. For the longest time, I was like, I do not. I do not feel better after exercise. I feel no. worse. Um, and it turns out I was just doing exercises that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so well, once I found an exercise that I liked or a you know routine that I enjoyed, um, I really did start to feel better. And I was like, damn it. Because, you know, it, it's when you're in a funk like that, the last thing you want to do is to be told by somebody that you'll feel better if you eat right and exercise. <laughs> oh my God. I know. I want to slap um, someone every time that they say that to me. And I know that it's true because it's like when I eat like crap, when I just eat, like when I'm in depression mode, like I'm just like, I just want carbs. Like that's all I want to eat is just like carbs are my comfort food. And like yep. that's all I want make- is cheese. Yeah. <laughs> And, like, that's not going to make me feel better. Like, what I should be eating is, like, fresh fruit. I should be eating, you know, some vegetables. And that's, like, the last thing that I want to do. And it's, like, once I actually start doing that, I always feel better. And then I'm always, like, oh, Maggie, you should listen <laughs> to the people telling you to eat the good foods. And, yeah, it's hard. It's I mean, it's hard to break a way that you've like break a coping mechanism that you've used for so long to make yourself feel better well and for some of this stuff too I've been able to you know kind of get my husband on board with helping me remember some of the triggers and remember Mm. some of the things um so I mean candidly my husband hasn't always been the biggest fan of therapy and things like that um didn't he knew about as much as I did before my experience with postpartum, which was very little. Um, and so it really helped. We went to that first appointment together, um, so that he could explain to the psychiatrist what he'd been seeing in me, et cetera. Um, and I really think, you know, getting those technical explanations from the psychiatrist, like we were talking about earlier, helped him quite a bit as well, because he was understanding why this was happening and you know, the science behind it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also got to hear some of those tips and tricks about things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in those earlier days, if I would be sitting in the house, you know, not wanting to go out for a walk, he'd be like, let's go take the dogs for a walk. Um, and of course I, you know, I knew he didn't really want to take the dogs for the walk. He wanted me to get out of the house, but it was mm-hmm. a nice, you know, <laughs> it was a nice uh, euphemism or a, a nice way of smoothing it over. Um, and the same for, um, some of the other things like, oh, why don't we get up and uh, listen to some music? Which music do you want to listen to? 
um, that kind of thing. Um, but I have to say, you know, if he told me to get up and like, why don't you eat a salad? <laughs> I'd be like, go ask yourself. <laughs> exactly. So some of that, you know, it's, it's a good idea to have, you know, a support person in your life that can help you get on board with it. But it's also to, good to know if that support person, um, you know, how they can help you best, because I'm not going to listen to him if he tells me to go eat some vegetables. No, but if you bring me like a smoothie or like a, a fresh pressed juice, I'll yes, be like, exactly. oh, delicious. I'm into exactly. it. And then it doesn't make <laughs> me feel like I am being forced to eat a salad, which I'll probably take as like my husband being like, you are fat. And then I'll get exactly. even more <laughs> into a spiral. It's interesting that you say that too, because actually recently um, we did a joint my husband and I did a joint session with my psychiatrist because she really wanted to talk to him about, you know, my diagnoses um, and sort of how it affects me, how it affects my personality, how it could affect the relationship, how I feel about certain things. And I think it was, I mean, it's still super fresh and we've had so much stuff go on since then. Um, but I think it was really helpful for him to sort of see how certain things for me, um, like how I can react in different ways just because of my diagnosis of ADHD. That's such a good point because there's, Mm -hmm. you know, for the person who's not experiencing it themselves, it can be very difficult to know how to respond. I mean, you know, like I mentioned, my husband hasn't had experience with, you know, this kind of struggle in the past. Um, And so when I was telling him, you know, early on after my son was born, oh, I, you know, I don't think I'm a good mom. I, anybody could be a better mom. He'd be better off without me. He was like, that's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And um, his, you know, in his head he was being supportive he was like obviously you're a good mom obviously he's better off with you yeah don't think like that but that you know was not necessarily a helpful response right (laughs) exactly now it's hilarious and now I laugh at it but you know maybe not the most helpful thing to say in the moment and so for him to you know to have that conversation with the doctor and to learn how to best support me was key Mm -hmm. was really key for us nice So, you know, we talked a little bit about how everything manifested so differently for me with my daughter and my son. How did it, how did it present for you when you experienced issues in postpartum? Um, So, I mean, my experience was a little bit different. Um, I was diagnosed with um, depression in my teenage years. Um, and I think probably around 15, I was diagnosed. So I was on medication, um, and sort of, that was sort of at the end of the nineties. And I think in that period of time, it was still sort of very stigmatized to talk about Mm -hmm. anything sort of mental health related. Um, so I was definitely told, you know, by different people, you know, like, don't tell people that you're depressed. Um, Like people don't want to hear about your problems. You need to like keep it to yourself. It's kind of shameful that you have this stuff going on. Um, 
so I sort of saw it as like this shameful thing um, that I just sort of didn't discuss with anybody. Um, And I think sort of going through that was a obviously a very isolating thing um and it I mean I was on medication I was doing therapy I don't think that necessarily I was doing sort of enough work with um with sort of working on myself and changing things um and then I had a um, a, a sort of a, a near-death experience. So like I was saying before, I did music theater um, way back in the day. And I had gotten a part in a musical um, in Edmonton. So we live in, we live in BC. So we were like, we'll just drive um, over to Edmonton for the summer for me to do this musical. Um, so we were driving along. Everything went great. Um, I was napping in the car and then all of a sudden my mom woke me up and she's like, this person behind us is like signaling us to like pull over. She's like, I don't know what's happening. And we, so we pull over the car and this guy who was driving behind us comes running to the car and he's like there's literal flames shooting out from underneath your car you need to get out of your car like right now and I literally had no shoes on and I just jumped out of the car I didn't grab anything jumped out of the car my mom thank god grabbed her purse jumped out of the car and I kid you not it was like a movie like we were maybe 10 seconds running away from the car and the entire thing got engulfed in flames. Oh my gosh. And you had no idea. Yeah. And we lost obviously everything in the car. Um, And we had, and we were in like a weird, we were sort of in the middle of nowhere. So we were in like no man's land for like a, like for a fire truck to come. Cause they were like, we called like 911 and they were like, okay, well you're sort of in between places. So like no one really like services the area or whatever. Oh my gosh. Sorry. You broke down in the wrong spot, guys. Exactly. I was like, well, I'm not going to have a car fire. Like, you know, here I'm going to drive 10 miles down. Um, So they, so the car got extinguished. We ended up on a bus to Edmonton, which in hindsight we never should have done like we should have just gone home at that point um because I'm pretty sure I had like PTSD from that um sure I had no I had no shoes like (laughs) we arrived in in Edmonton and it was just like we had nothing there was like this whole thing with insurance getting stuff anyway I obviously went into a very deep spiral um how old were you when this happened this was I I think I was 16 when this happened 16 or 17 um so bad for poor baby Maggie I know like honestly poor baby Maggie like I was just like she should have she should have gone home like it just it was not a good situation for me to be in um 
and I just kept spiraling, spiraling. I didn't have, it's a very weird thing when you lose all of your stuff. So you have nothing that is grounding you, if that makes any sense. Like I didn't have any of my clothes. We had to buy all new stuff, whatever. Um, And so I just completely spiraled and actually ended up um, um, attempting suicide and um luckily it wasn't i i didn't take enough to properly overdose um and so basically i just you know my parents took me to the hospital they were like she hasn't taken enough we could put her on a hold but we're not we don't have to and i was like i just want to go off like home and sleep it off um So, um, again, probably should have gone home after that, but we still stayed. Um, so I think that scared me enough into wanting A, to make a change, B, to start talking about my depression with other people, um, because again, it was hidden. I didn't tell anybody in like the musical that I was in. I had really good friends at the time. I didn't tell anybody anything that happened. I sort of just, again, just kept it to myself. Didn't talk to anybody. Um, And then after that, I was just like, you know what? Like this is, I can't keep this as like my dirty little secret. I need to start talking to people about it. And I can't remember exactly when I started. I think it was probably after I graduated high school. But then I really started to talk to other people about my depression and realized, you know, how many other people also dealt with it. And I think for so many years, I felt like I was the only person who had this disease and who felt this way about myself and to talk with other people and realize that I wasn't alone and for them to also realize that they weren't alone was such a massive shift for me. It's such a relief to know that you're not the only one. It's a hundred percent such a relief. And since then it's sort of become like my guiding force like I always will I'm so open about my mental health issues I'm always so open about my anxiety um I believe in like crying in front of my kids like I'm not one of those people who won't cry in front of my kids I think it's really important for them to see me crying and like when they ask like why I'm crying I'll say you know what mommy's just sad today and that's okay like she's crying because she's sad and I think that is super important and I think um being open about things is super important and I like honestly like if I help like one person to feel less alone to feel like they can come talk to me or that they feel like they can share their story as well is massive for me and that's really been something that I'm super passionate about um And also why I wanted to start this podcast, because I kind of felt the same way about motherhood. I felt like people were constantly talking about the great stuff. It was like, you know, the social media aspect of it. Hashtag blessed, like hashtag mama life. (laughs) 
And I'm like, this is bullshit. Like, I know that there's people that are not having a good time with this kind of stuff. And especially with the cat moms, I was like, thank God. Like, finally, we're talking about the real shit. And I can talk to these women in an honest way. Because, like, I had terrible pregnancies. I hated being pregnant. Um, I had um, hyperemesis through both pregnancies. So I had morning sickness the entire time that I was pregnant. Um, I was on Zofran the entire time that I was on both my pregnancies. I felt like absolute garbage. Um, And was it the Zofran that gave you that funky rash or was that a separate? I'm remembering that right. (laughs) Yes, that was a separate, that was a separate thing. So with Riley, I got hemorrhoids, which was super fun because (laughs) Ian did not, Ian did not believe that I had hemorrhoids. I like came home from work and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I have hemorrhoids. And he's like, I don't think you have hemorrhoids. And I'm like, it's a legit pregnancy thing. I know that I have hemorrhoids. Like, can you go get me hemorrhoid cream? And he's like, call the nurse's hotline. So I had to call. (laughs) And And what did he think was happening instead? (laughs) What did he think the alternative was? I don't know. But I had to call the nurse's hotline. And I'm like, I'm pregnant. I'm pretty sure I had hemorrhoids. I had to talk to this super sweet, like super elderly nurse who was just like have you had anal sex recently and I'm like (laughs) no (laughs) and then she's like it's it's hemorrhoids and I was just like Ian like uh, like just get me the hemorrhoid stuff so I had hemorrhoids with Riley I had kidney stones with Riley like right at the beginning of my pregnancy um which was like some of the worst pain I've ever had in my entire life. And literally I thought that I was miscarrying because it was so early on. Um, And I had to go at the time we were living like downtown uh, Vancouver. And so we had to go to the hospital there and like, literally it was like me and like a bunch of people who had either like OD'd or were like, yeah like coming off of drugs and it was just me being like I think I'm miscarrying because I'm in the worst pain of my life um and they like didn't believe me they were like nope you're fine it's just you know cramping or whatever sent me back and I think I went three nights in a row and the third night I was like to the point where I was lying on the floor and I'm like Ian you need to call an ambulance like I cannot I cannot move off of this floor um So they took me in and then finally they were like, okay, you have like kidney stones. Um, And the cool, the one cool thing about having kidney stones is that they had to take an ultrasound. So we got to see Riley when she was just like a little, little bean inside of me, like just a little, little tiny bean. Um, And that was pretty cool to see her as like, just like this little tadpole. Um, And Ian had to tell, Ian ended up telling his parents that I was pregnant when I was in the hospital. Cause he was just like freaking out. And he's like, I need to call my parents. Like, what do we do? Like, you might be miscarrying. Like, you know, he was just freaking out. And I'm like, just call your parents, let them know, let them know what's happening. So that's how they got the news that I was pregnant. <laughs> just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Maggie's in the hospital. We don't know what's happening. But we're also pregnant. <laughs> um, so that was, it was just, 
yeah, it was a, it was a not, not a great pregnancy. And then, um, and then she came four weeks early. Um, my experience with postpartum um, was a little bit different just because I had been on, obviously on antidepressants, on anti-anxiety medications um, throughout my pregnancy. Um, and we worked with my GP sort of on that. Um, and I, th- I feel like it wasn't super bad with Riley. Like I kind of, I kind of knew that it was like a very high possibility. Like I think my OB was basically like, because you have a history of mental illness already, um, the chances of you having postpartum are, are pretty high. So like, we're going to just basically keep an eye on you. Um, And so I don't even think that there was sort of a moment of, of like, okay, this is not right. I think it was just a moment of like, okay, I can see that my, um, my depression is getting worse and that my anxiety is getting worse. Um, and I was kind of like the same as you with the Andrea Yates thing. I, my sort of, I guess, like, vision sort of of like postpartum depression was Brooke Shields um when she had said that she had postpartum depression um I think like in the like late 90s or early aughts and she said that she wanted to like she had this like feeling of that she needed to like like drive her car with her kids into a wall and I remember thinking sort of the same way that you did I'm like well I don't want to do that so I don't think it's postpartum depression but it's probably just like my depression you know coming up again um so then I ended up going to see a psychiatrist about it and it definitely was postpartum depression um and postpartum anxiety um and I had the same thing with intrusive thoughts of like we lived in a like in a condominium at the time and we were on like a high floor and I was just like I just had this thought of like Riley just like falling over the edge of the balcony like all the time and I was just like I couldn't I couldn't go on the balcony obviously she was not on the balcony like no one was on the balcony um and then I also had a thing of like a very weird intrusive thought about like somehow like cutting her finger off like I don't know where that came from but that was one that would play a lot in my head and I would be like I don't even know where this is coming from I mean probably all the horror stories that people tell you about cutting babies fingernails and how they squirm and yeah (laughs) yeah and it's like that's the thing about intrusive thoughts is like I think a lot of people have these intrusive thoughts and they're like, oh my God, like I'm a terrible person for having these thoughts. But those, that isn't you. Like you are not your thoughts. The intrusive thoughts that come in is just like your subconscious. Um, And I think a lot of people 
when they get intrusive thoughts, they're like, oh my God, like I'm a terrible person. Like I should not be thinking yeah. this, but you have no control over them. Hence, you know, them being <laughs> hence intrusive. The intrusive. Hence the intrusive part of it. Um, so I think that's really important for new moms to know is like, if you have these thoughts, that does not mean that you're a bad person. That does not mean that you're a bad mom or like, you know, something's wrong with you for thinking this, this, you are not your thoughts. I was going to say, my doctor had explained it to me kind of like, you know, how dreams happen, mm-hmm. um, where your brain takes all sorts of information that it's been processing throughout the day and gathers all of it in some sort of weird brain stew and then shoots them out as dreams. And yeah. so, you know, sometimes your dreams may have logical sense and flow to them, but sometimes there's just like this one tiny thing that happened earlier in your day and your brain latches onto that and a whole new weird wacky story comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was like, that's what an intrusive thought essentially is. It's, you know, your brain trying to make sense of something and being unable to. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's pushing it out to you because, you know, it's, it's unable to make sense of it. And, you know, unfortunately it's coming, in, <laughs> it's coming into your conscience from your subconscious. And that's, you know, like you were saying, I had the idea, oh, well, if I'm having this intrusive thought, it's because the thought is somewhere back in my brain that I am thinking and therefore I am bad for thinking it. Yes. And he was like, if you have a nightmare where there's like weird, crazy ghosts and witches in it, have you been thinking about that? No, but it is in your brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean you were, you know, thinking about that. It just means that your brain was processing information in a specific way and spit it back out in a specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, and hearing it explained in that way, again, was super helpful because like you said, I had a lot of guilt over those thoughts, wondering, like, does it mean I want to do these things? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't feel like I want to. No, like, I definitely um. <laughs> don't want to chop my kids' fingers off, but that was in my head all the time. And I was just like, exactly. like, what kind of psychopath thinks about that? And it's like, no, this is an intrusive thought. This is not you. And, you know, the same thing with... I, I remember talking to my psychiatrist when Riley was going um, into daycare. That was a huge, huge trigger for me. Um, and my, my, my like trigger and my, my worry and my like intrusive thought was like, she is going to go to this daycare of people that I don't know and she's going to get molested. And I don't know if it's like because I watch a lot of true crime. I don't know where that came from. But I remember telling my psychiatrist and she's like, just like, think about this. Like you are, this is where you're go- you're going from like one to a hundred right now. Like you're worried about, you know, finding a good place for your kid. You're worried about placing your kid in with, you know, strangers, but then you're taking it to the nth degree and spiraling into all of a sudden, like, oh my God, I'm worried that my kid is going to get molested. And she's like, that's your anxiety talking. And that's you anxiety spiraling. Yep. And I did the same thing with, with Jackson when he got 
diagnosed um, with autism, I was talking with my psychiatrist and I was crying and she's like, tell me your thought process right now. And I'm like, okay, well, like he, he was just diagnosed with being on the spectrum. He's low on the spectrum. And like, I'm just worried about like how he's going to be accepted. Um, you know, by his peers, I'm worried about, you know, how other people are going to treat him. I'm worried that he's not going to be able to hold down a job. I'm worried about all of this stuff. And she's like, okay, she's like, back it up. She's like, you just told me he was diagnosed low on the spectrum. He's going to have so many of these therapies, which you've just told me is going to help him a lot. And he's been diagnosed early on. She's like, but then you're going from like one to a thousand. And now all of a sudden you're worried that he's not going to be able to like hold down a job. She's like, you need, (laughs) she's like, this is an anxiety spiral that you need to like take it back. And it's true. It's like when you're in these anxiety spirals, it's like you go and you get this like little itty bitty piece of information and then you take it to the the furthest place possible that you could possibly go with it. Oh my goodness. Yes. With Juliet, you know, when she was five weeks old, she was diagnosed with pyloric stenosis, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which just requires a, um, a laparoscopic surgery to correct and is, you know, once diagnosed is very easy to correct, but it's difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went from her being, you know, four to five weeks old and throwing up fairly regularly when she was eating and me panicking about it to me imagining her as like a college kid um, still eating a liquid diet because there was something wrong with her and, you know, like having a colostomy bag because clearly something was so wrong that her entire organ system was going to have to be taken out or something. You know, I just went into this whole spiral of like, I went from, she's throwing up a little bit more than a normal baby would (laughs) to (laughs) envisioning her entire future as, you know, this person with this massive illness um, that takes over her entire life. And it's, you know, the, the jump from A to B is extreme Mm-hmm. But in my mind, it happened in the space of maybe three minutes. Yeah, <laughs> so. 100%. And it's like, for me too, um, like last year, I got diagnosed with ADHD, um, which honestly has been like a life changing thing for me, because it just explains so much um, of my life and how I've always been. I mean, I've always been such an emotionally charged person. I take things to heart, like to the nth degree, like, you know, someone could look at me wrong and I'm just like, they hate me. Like they hate me. (laughs) And like, I don't know what I did, but they hate me or, you know, with, you know, getting a a project started. Like I, I've always been like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You know how long I've been wanting to do a podcast years, like three years. And I'm like all the time I was like, I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to do a podcast. And it's like, finally one day I just was like, do the, do the effing podcast, (laughs) sit down and do it. Stop with your executive dysfunction. That's stopping you from doing what you want to do and just do it. And I did it. 
and now I'm doing it. And it's like, for me, it especially became very acutely aware to me that something was wrong when I became a parent because I would forget things. I mean, I've always been a forgetful person. I've always lost stuff. And it's always been like a haha, you know, funny thing. But when you have kids, when you forget, say, pizza day, you forget to order pizza for your, your kid. That's like, you know, Riley will come home and just be like, why didn't, why didn't you order me pizza? And it's like, you know, it's the end of her world. And I'm just like, shit, like, I can't, it was so hard for me to keep stuff together and to keep everything in line and to remember to do X, Y, Z, to remember that there's a birthday party here that we have to get a present for said birthday party that, you know, Riley has something at school that I need to remember to do for. And I would be forgetting these things. I'd forget doctor's appointments. I would forget, you know, dentist appointments. And I really was like, looking at the rest of the world and again it's that social media thing of like why is everyone adulting so easily and I am not like I'm not a good adult like there is something that's going on that it's so much easier for everyone else around me to do these things and it's like I'm just stuck and it's like I want to do these things I want to you know put Riley in dance class but it's like I forget the, 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 you know, the date, the deadline for signing her up or I forget to like look into it and it's like, and then she's mad at me because I haven't signed her up for it. And it's like, but everyone else is managing to do this. And And kids are so unforgiving of that. First of all, I mean, not intentionally, you know, aggressively, but just how kids brains work. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also, can I just say that we do not make this easy on parents because half the time the sign up deadlines go by so fast. They you know, to sign up my kid for summer camp, I had to set an alarm and register at like one o'clock in the morning, and it was full yes. by nine a.m. Yes. and I'm just like, what are what are we doing? How are we what? doing this to people? Exactly. Like the the one of the worst ones for me was for kindergarten sign up. So there's a school by us that we were like, okay, Riley's obviously going to the school. Kindergarten sign up was at like, I think it was at 6.30. And I start work at 7.30. So at that time, I would have been on a bus. So I was like, easy peasy. Once I get to work, I'll just sign her up, whatever. Get to work, sign her up. And they're like, they're like, okay, so there were a lot of people signing up kids so you're like on a wait list and I was like wait what oh my gosh and literally this the I think there were like 60 spots or something for this one school which Riley for like the past two years has been like this is my school this is going to be my school I can't wait to go to kindergarten here my school my school literally in a minute all of the spots were filled and I was like an hour and a half late. <laughs> and I remember everyone, we had like, I think uh, two or three other kids on our block that were also going into kindergarten that year. All of them got into that kindergarten except for me and Riley. Oh. And I remember just coming home and like bawling to Ian, just being like, I am a terrible parent. Like, 
how is everyone else able to do this and able to like sign up for their kids on time and like I was on a friggin' bus and I had no idea that I needed to apparently do it the minute of and he's like babe she'll be fine whatever school she goes to it's fine like don't beat yourself up you didn't know and like she's so happy at her school now now we can look back on it and like laugh at the ridiculousness of it because it's effing impossible to get into that school but at that time I just felt like I just let my kid down so hardcore and it was it wasn't until the pandemic when I started watching TikTok (laughs) that I got (laughs) on ADHD TikTok and I was like wait a minute I'm like how are you in my brain it was like literally every single thing that the people on ADHD TikTok were talking about was me and my life and how I had felt my whole life and I was just like holy holy shit like this is this is me like this is full-on me and like I took like the online quizzes and I'm like this is even more so me and the thing with ADHD is that it can look like depression and anxiety because those are some of the um some of the symptoms that go along with it I mean I'm still diagnosed as being depressed having generalized anxiety and ADHD um but it can, in women, it can look like depression and anxiety. And the way it shows up in women is so different than in men. Um, so getting diagnosed really caused this huge shift in me of, okay, this is not my fault that I'm like this. This is how my brain functions and I need to work with my brain and not against my brain. And I need to give myself that grace and that love and understanding that my brain works differently than other people's brains. And like, how can I do that? How can I better focus myself? How can I you know, trick myself into doing things that maybe I don't necessarily want to do and that my executive dysfunction is stopping me from doing. How do I do that? So I think it's really been sort of a journey over the past year to A, accept myself, B, forgive myself for my past, for when I used to just beat myself up. Like I just... I just always felt, you know, like different from everybody. I always felt like everyone else was sort of going through life in this easy breezy way. And I was always the one that was just like, this shit is fucking hard. And like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like I would just always hit roadblocks and I would always be so emotional about things. Um, There's a thing with ADHD that um rejection 
it's like a rejection sensitivity so it's like any sort of small rejection that to someone else would just be like oh okay whatever like you know so and so doesn't want to play with me today that I would that to an ADHD person they take it to heart so much and major setback it's a major setback and it's a major you know oh my god this person doesn't like me oh my god no one likes me oh my god everyone hates me I have no friends and it just like spirals so I think for a lot of my life I really felt sort of like this weirdo that was like going through life feeling just just different like just like just that everyone else was getting it they were getting the life thing and I was just sort of like treading water constantly like I was just always like oh shit I forgot to do this oh shit I lost this oh fuck I forgot about this like timeline with school um so I think once I got that diagnosis it really changed so much for me and for my self-esteem and for just being gentler with myself. And um, I mean, another thing for my ADHD has always been that I like, I can't relax whatsoever. I feel guilty whenever I'm sitting down because I feel like I need to be doing more things. So that's been one of the biggest things for me is actually being able to relax and not feel guilty for it. That's interesting. So until you just mentioned that I was kind of nodding along with a lot of this going, do I maybe have ADHD? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of your story here makes a whole lot of sense to me, but the uh, enjoying relaxing and not feeling guilty about it. That is, that is not one of my issues. Luckily or unluckily, I don't know. fucking luckily because like it is it's it's so brutal because I will say like it's at the end of the day and I am exhausted I've had a long day I've just put the kids to bed and I'm like okay I'm gonna watch a tv show and I'll sit on the couch and I'll just sit there and it's like I want to relax and it's like it's impossible to relax because because I'm thinking like okay these dishes need to go away oh shit I need to do this for tomorrow oh god I shouldn't be sitting here I should be actually like folding laundry oh god I should be going to bed maybe a little bit earlier oh shit I forgot to send that email and it's like ever since I was little I always said like I wish that I could turn my brain off yep and that is my ADHD it's literally like with boys it's you know, it's that hyperactive thing where they're like running off the walls and running around and doing stuff with girls. Mostly it's in our heads. So it's like our heads are the little boys running around doing everything. That's what's (laughs) going, that's what's going on in our heads. And it's like, I wish so much that I could shut that off. And I like, and as somebody who in my early 20s and sort of mid-20s was definitely drinking a lot and more than she probably should have um, because it did shut that voice down and it did sort of shut my brain up for a little bit and I was able to just sort of be in the moment. So now it's kind of like, okay, well, how do I do that 
and not have to rely on a substance in order to re- like to, sh- to shut my brain up. So it's a lot of meditation. It's a lot of sitting in discomfort um, and sort of like my healing in this past year. A lot of it that I've realized is like healing is not comfortable. It's, no. <laughs> it's, it's sitting in these like emotions that you don't want to sit in and processing those emotions that you don't want to process and dealing with stuff in your past that you didn't necessarily want to deal with. So within that sort of healing and sort of going through those emotions from my past and also seeing like what triggers me now and sort of tracing it back to like, okay, well, where, where, where did this start? Like, where did this trigger start in my life? And how can we like deal with that situation and heal that situation in order for me to not have that trigger or for me when I get triggered to understand that that's where it comes from. So that's really been where I've been at with sort of my mental health journey. I think my postpartum depression and my postpartum anxiety sort of just like melded into (laughs) my normal things and definitely like got heightened after I had kids, um, which got me on more medication. And I was, you know, speaking with um, psychiatrists after, um, after I had kids and yeah, I think, I mean, it's, like you know healing isn't linear it's one of those things that um I'm constantly doing I'm constantly working on so that's kind of um where I'm at well may I just say that I am very very glad that your attempt in the high school days was unsuccessful and that I got to meet you I'm the much much better for it as are the rest of the cat moms I know for sure Thank you. You're going to make me cry on the podcast. Well, I love you a lot. We all love you a lot. I and love you a lot. we're very glad you're here. Thank you. I'm glad and too I... because I just think of all the, you know, the things that I would have missed. And to anybody who's out there dealing with, you know, suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts, please reach out to somebody. Please reach out to your GP. Please reach out to a suicide hotline, please reach if, if anything, if you need, if you don't, if you feel like you have no one reach out to me at the cat mom podcast on Instagram, I will talk to you um, because you are important. You're loved. You need to be here. It does get better. I swear to God. Um, So if any of this, you know, resonated with you, if you're a new mom, if you know, you're just, you know, a mom and you feel like maybe, you know, maybe I have anxiety, maybe I have depression, maybe I have ADHD. Stephanie is probably now going to go. <laughs> yes, I'm going to go start Googling some things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just wanted to go over some of the um, symptoms of certain things. So for post um, postpartum anxiety, um, Some behavioral symptoms can be avoiding certain activities, avoiding people and places because of perceived danger, 
um, being overly cautious about situations that aren't typically dangerous, um, checking things over and over again, trying to control situations or people. Um, if you, the signs where you should go to a doctor and if any of the, if you have any of these symptoms and you feel like it is affecting your life or in any sort of bad way, please, 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 please go to a doctor. Um, but especially go to a doctor if you're afraid that you may harm yourself or your baby. Um, if your anxiety is lasting for most of the day. For postpartum depression, um, some of the signs are unexplainable bouts of crying, irritability, anxiety, fatigue or difficulty sleeping, mood changes, difficulty concentrating, and changes in libido. And I do want to mention that 50% of women uh, do experience postpartum depression. So do not think that you are alone because it's literally one in every two women who um, deal with postpartum depression. Um, more serious, you could have overwhelming feelings of sorrow, guilt, or worthlessness, thoughts of hurting yourself or your baby, um, difficulty bonding, fatigue combined with inability to sleep, and withdrawal from friends and family. And for postpartum uh, psychosis, uh, things that you should be looking out for are delusions or strange beliefs, hallucinations, feeling very irritated, hyperactivity, severe depression or flat effect, decreased need for or inability to sleep, paranoia and suspiciousness, rapid mood swings, uh, difficulty communicating at times, and the risk factor, uh, factors for postpartum psychosis um, can come from personal or a family history of bipolar or previous um, psychotic episodes. Um, delusions may take many forms. Not all are destructive and... The majority of people who do have postpartum psychosis um, don't harm themselves or their children, but there is a risk because of the delusional thinking and irrational judgment. Um, I also have some crisis and suicide prevention hotlines for the U.S. and Canada. So for the U.S., the National Crisis Text Line is you text home. So H-O-M-E then 41741. And the suicide prevention hotline in the U.S. is you just dial 988 and you can call for yourself or for others. And it's available 24-7 and there are 140 crisis centers nationwide. Um, in Canada, um, we have the Talk Suicide Canada hotline, which is 1-833-456-4566. Um, and in the fall of this year, we will be getting the suicide crisis line will be 988, like it is in the States. Um and then there's also something called Wellness Together, which will connect you one-on-one -on -one with a mental health professional. And that number is 
0445. Or you can text wellness. So W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S to 741741. And I will put all of these in our show notes. So they are there for everyone to see. Um, and I wanted to end on a little bit of a lighter note since this has been <laughs> a bit of a rougher episode. Um, everyone knows my beef with Texas, but I found a really cute story that has happened recently that I would like to share with all of you that maybe will take my beef with Texas down a little bit. A I'm just, I'm just going to read the article from people.com. Uh, <laughs> I'm so intrigued. <laughs> a 90-year-old tortoise native to Madagascar, the oldest animal at Houston Zoo, is now reportedly a first-time dad thanks to a zookeeper with a keen eye. Mr. Pickles moved to the Texas facility 36 years ago and partnered up with Mrs. Pickles 27 years into his residency the Houston Zoo shared. The couple remained childless, smart, until recently <laughs> when a worker noticed Mrs. Pickles' eggs at closing and quickly scooped them up to take them to the zoo's reptile and amphibian house. Houston soil is unsuitable for tortoise eggs native to Madagascar, an island country off the coast of Northeast Africa, so the eggs weren't safe outdoors. On Thursday, Three eggs from the pickles pair successfully hatched at the zoo's reptile and amphibian house. The new tortoises named Dill, Gherkin, and Jalapeno will stay at the building. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. What are those names? Okay. Sorry. Until they are big enough to safely join their parents, the zoo's website said. People contacted the Houston Zoo for official comment and more information on the new family of five. The zoo also posted an update about the tortoises to its Facebook page. Baby pickles have hatched. At 90 years young, Mr. Pickles is the oldest animal at the zoo and the newest father of three radiated tortoises. These three pickles are a big deal for radiated tortoise (laughs) genetics. As their father is the most genetically valuable radiated tortoise in the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the posted added. While Mr. Pickles' 90 years is impressive, a tortoise named Jonathan is the world's oldest living tortoise and land animal, according to the Guinness World of Records. He recently celebrated his 190th birthday, although the exact date of Jonathan's birth is unknown. And let me tell you, I have done deep dive research into Jonathan the tortoise because I was very interested. And he may be either gay or pansexual because his life partner were unsure if it was born a female or a male. So God bless pansexual slash gay jonathan the 190th old tortoise and mr and mrs pickles i feel like mrs pickles not mentioned a lot in this article yeah because she's maybe a little bit younger but she was the one who did the work with the eggs 
yeah like i'm sorry it's all about the guy but all he yeah yeah anyway i'm a little irritated with that the friggin patriarchy even in tortoises even in tortoises the patriarchy is real but congratulations to mr pickles and mrs pickles and to dill gherkin and jalapeno may you be blessed with many years of tortoise happiness and i hope that you go and visit them the next time you're at the houston zoo for me and say hello Oh my goodness. I'm just going to say you are going to have to put a picture of the baby tortoises in the show notes because these things are cute. Oh my God. They are the cutest. I will also put a picture of Mr. and Mrs. Pickles and also Jonathan because Jonathan looks like he, I mean, he's lived through a lot, um, <laughs> but he, he looks like it. Um, so yeah, I just thought that I would share a lovely story coming out of Texas. Um to end this uh <laughs> to end this, this podcast Texas, where the people are assholes but the turtles live a long time <laughs> right well Steph it's been so lovely to finally finish this episode with you I love you so much and thank you for discussing mental health and postpartum anxiety postpartum depression everything i love you so much too thank you for putting up with me coughing directly (laughs) into your ear (laughs) and all of my many reschedules due to the many illnesses Um, (laughs) and i wanted to say too just to encourage anybody who uh, might want to reach out but is nervous too i would love to talk to anybody as well um so maggie can put you in touch with me if you reach out to her at the cat mom podcast on instagram hundred percent. We are here for you. We love you so much. Feel free to email us um, at the cat mom podcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at the cat mom podcast. If you need any help, if you need to speak out and you want to speak to somebody, you can speak to me and Steph. I'm sure there's other cat moms who would love to speak with you as well. So please, please, please reach out and we love you. And thank you for listening. And until next time, let's keep, uh, let's keep supporting each other like drunk girls in a, in a bar bathroom. This has been the Cat Mum Podcast, and I have been your host, Maggie Samiklahey. Until next time, let's keep supporting other mums like drunk girls in a bar bathroom.